Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Pray with me, please. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Timing matters. Timing matters. I was six years old in kindergarten. Her name was Emily. She had a way with the Legos. And we often sat together at lunch. And I was enamored with her. But timing matters. I was a student of history, and as my parents had encouraged me to read, I often found myself completely transfixed by stories of days past. And in that season of kindergarten, as a six-year-old, it was the Revolutionary War. And so we read stories of Paul Revere and of George Washington, of Benedict Arnold and of the Delaware River. And as I took them in, I was fully absorbed in the drama and the action. And as any six-year-old boy would... I wanted to share this excitement and this exuberance and all the lessons that I had learned with Emily, my sweetheart. And so, as was fully logical, I took the opportunity to write a letter, a note, a word for my beloved. And I sat there at the kitchen table pen and crayons in hand, and I wrote it, and my mother helped me address it, looking askance and worried at what I had written, but nonetheless, stamped it, put it in the mail, and off it went. And a couple days later, Emily's mother received the letter in the mail, saw that it was from me, her friend at school. The boy she talked about, gave it to her, 
And they opened it. And they encountered this. Emily, the British are coming, the British are coming. (laughs) Be prepared. I wish I could tell you that it worked out. I wish I could tell you that the Emily to whom I'm married now is is the culmination of that long story, but timing matters. And my six-year-old brain was such that I couldn't catch the idea of chronological flow and sequence. I couldn't grasp the fact that these fully absorbing stories, this drama that I was reading about, wasn't occurring in our own day. And so my heartfelt concern poured out for that sweet little girl wanting to warn her and guard her was somewhat scary and rather creepy and worrisome enough that we parted ways eventually. Timing matters. And as we come to this and other portions of Peter's first epistle, we are reminded in a stark, somewhat jarring way, a disorienting way, if we're honest, that timing matters. And one of the great concerns of Peter and the other apostles is to remind you and me, brothers and sisters in Christ, what time it is and how we live accordingly. You see, we often get our times mixed up as Christians. Peter writes in his second epistle, his follow-up act, that We are called to hasten the day of the coming of the Lord, and yet we are called to wait for it patiently. Those are two alarming words. At first glance, they may seem to be mutually contradictory words. You're to hasten the day, and we struggle, don't we, sometimes to hold on to hope and to hasten that which we know to be better. We struggle to imagine that there's something greater than that that we experience now. Our hearts are wearied. Our vision is brought lower by what we see around us, what we experience on the six o'clock news, by what we feel in our own hearts as we struggle. But Peter tells us there is a greater day and you're to hasten it. You're to desire its coming, its appearing. You're to desire heaven increasingly coming to be the reality here on earth and eventually to see the glory of the Lord over the entire globe. We struggle in another way, though. Sometimes in our exuberance, sometimes in our excitement, sometimes in our desire for that perfection and that glory, we struggle to remember Peter's second word, to wait. We struggle to be patient. Perhaps we struggle with others. We look at our mother or our child. We think, why don't you get it? Why must you learn that lesson so slowly? Why must you fail to see what's inevitably going to come of your behavior? Perhaps we look at our neighbors, our leaders, our employers. We think, why do you fail to see what I so perceptively and cleverly see? Or perhaps most horrifically of all, we have no patience for ourselves. And we view our failure this day and our sin this week to be something that must write us out of God's kingdom. That God must 
be angry and displeased with us and that the the blood and the death of Christ cannot be enough for I've done it again. We fail to be patient with others. We fail to be patient with ourselves. And yet God is a God of great patience and God is a God of great hope. And so it's appropriate that we're called both to hasten the day and to wait patiently. And here in 1 Peter 2 and 3, we're being reminded in a number of areas of life what it looks like to hasten the coming of Christ, but to wait patiently in a way that befits the followers of Christ. In chapter 2, we are told that we are a holy nation, we're a royal priesthood, we're a people for his own possession. We have a remarkable identity and we have an equally remarkable calling. We're called to live faithfully and honorably among the Gentiles as sojourners and exiles. We're called to not flee or abdicate our neighborhoods, our entanglements, our involvements, our friendships, our families when they're not Christian, but we're to live honorably among even the Gentiles, those in that day and age who were not of the people of God, those who were not of Israel. And we as Christians are called today to live honorably among the Gentiles in a variety of fashions. And in chapter 2, Peter outlines a couple of them. He speaks of how we live honorably among the Gentiles when there are non-Christian leaders in that day, an emperor and his deputies, in our own day, a host of other governmental authorities, which sometimes are Christian and supportive of The faith and sometimes are not and are quite opposed to the faith. And we're called to live honorably amongst them and to submit appropriately and respectfully to them. And then he addresses employers or masters, those who would rule the economic sphere in the marketplace where we find ourselves vocationally. And oftentimes we find that those who hold our fate in a uh, vocational sense are supportive of our faith. And they respect our faith. And other times we find that they are perhaps, to put it mildly, baffled by our faith, offended perhaps by our faith, seeking to undermine and to mock our faith even, to make it more difficult. And again, we're told to live honorably among the Gentiles by submitting to those who are our masters, by respecting their position and to win them over with our gentle, quiet way. And here, at the beginning of chapter 3, we find a third facet of life, the family. And Peter has words for wives and for husbands. It's significant to note, as we look at this text, that there are so many things Peter doesn't say, and there's one crucial thing Peter means to get across. He wants to address how we interact in what we might call mixed marriages. We tend to think in our society mixed marriages are those that cross ethnic or racial boundaries. But in this society, he's addressing what we might call religiously mixed marriages. What happens when there's a married couple and one of them is converted to Christ? That's the dilemma here. What happens... When a man and woman are husband and wife, and more often than not, the woman is converted to Christ. In fact, that's why wives are addressed 
at six times the length of husbands because sociologically we know throughout history wives always get it first, right? Women are always, always, we see historically, among the first converts. You see it in the resurrection appearances. And so it was in the early church, and so it is today. And so that that raises a big question. What time is it? How should a wife live honorably amongst the Gentiles when she happens to be married to one? What does faithfulness and love look like? And we see here three things addressing that kind of situation. First, we see a word to wives. Verses 1 to 6. Likewise, and the word likewise is used here because this is the third statement of of a set involving this call to submit or to be subject. Likewise, be subject to your own husbands, just as all citizens are to be subject to rulers and just as employees are to be subject to employers, so wives are to be subject to their husbands or to submit to them. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say why. The order of marriage and the roles of husbands and wives are this way. You'd have to go look at Genesis 2 or Ephesians 5, which we prayed in the prayer of adoration to understand why God has designed that marriage function in a certain way with a husband as a leader. That's assumed here. Notice he also doesn't say anywhere in this passage what is involved in being subject or in submitting to a husband. He doesn't actually give details in that regard. There's not sort of a playbook of of what's involved in that, and that surely gives room for discernment and for difference in terms of how that fleshes itself out. What he does articulate is when you do it and why you do it. Two things, when you do it and why you do it. When do you continue to submit to a Gentile husband? When? Even if some don't obey the word even when they're not coming around, even when they don't show signs of conversion, even when they don't seem to be suddenly as religiously interested as you have found yourself to be. In other words, you need to be reminded what time it is. Glory is not yet here. The kingdom has not yet fully come. And you do, in fact, find yourself still married to a Gentile, to an unbeliever. And that means you have a responsibility As a Christian spouse, you don't spurn them. You aren't somehow no longer responsible to your marriage vows. You are still their spouse. And so you are still to act to them as you did before you were converted. Even if some do not obey the word, we continue to respect them and to be subject to them. Why do we do this? that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. There's a missionary impulse. There's a missionary goal. As with the other two instances of submission or subjection to authorities and to employers, so here with a spouse, by respectfully being citizens, by thoughtfully being employees, by faithfully being a respectful spouse, We win without a word. We quietly and gently witness to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And let's observe. Some of you have been it. Some of you have observed it. Some of you have been on the receiving end of it. 
nothing can be as grating as the new convert, right? Whether it's to religion or to some diet program or some exercise regime, right? Or to some new car or boat. People who discover something that they find to be captivating can be among the most annoying people you've ever met, right? I truly believe one of the reasons they have to pay me to be a teacher is that people who learn new things often are really frustrating. Not because they don't get it, but because they do get it and they, they just spout nothing but it all the time, right? And so teachers are paid to be there and to endure the exuberance that they bestow upon others. You've had a neighbor, you've had a brother or sister, you've perhaps had a spouse who's discovered something some avenue to pursue health, some new book or author, some religious practice. And they talk of it all the time. And it seems to minimize you. It seems to judge you. It seems to condemn you. Even if it's rather flippant and rather unimportant. We are told here, our deportment, our manner, our posture with unbelievers, is not to harangue them, not to harass them, not to overwhelm them with our witness, but to be quiet and gentle, to be faithful and patient, to show the kind of long game that God has clearly shown. We do that out of faith, knowing that it's not we who save people. We're called to testify, we're called to witness, we're called to speak the truth, But we are not called to overwhelm people with our words, to demean people into the kingdom. And here, especially, especially in that most intimate of relations with a spouse, we're called to a gentle, quiet, patient witness with the hope and goal that God will use that, that God will use our commitment, that God will use our selflessness as a means of winning over the other. Now, a couple things this doesn't mean. This submission and subjection to the unchristian husband. First of all, we need to note this does not mean that as a means of showing respect and submission to the husband, a Christian wife, or any wife for that matter, undergoes physical or sexual abuse. One would hope it goes without saying, but it needs to be said, right? And some of you need to hear it in any room of this size. This is addressing a husband who makes faith difficult, not a husband who hits you. This is addressing a situation where a husband doesn't encourage your walk in Christ, but looks askance or perhaps mocks your faith in Christ. And you wish you had a supportive husband, but God is calling you, now to submit and respect the one you have and to love them even though they don't lead you more deeply into the Lord. This is not addressing a husband who harms you. And if you find yourself in that position, you go out of love to the police. You go out of love to the elders of your church. Being abused doesn't remove you of the duty to love, but love doesn't look like Forgetting or ignoring or looking away. It is love to the abuser that they wind up in jail. 
is love to the abuser that they be disciplined by the church. It is not love that they be allowed to continue to harm, to hurt, to dehumanize you or themselves in so doing. We need to be very clear about that. Secondly, we want to know loving the non-Christian spouse doesn't mean that out of respect to them, you never talk about your marriage with others. Living with a non-Christian or living with someone who doesn't encourage you in your faith is going to be hard. It's going to be costly. That's why you have to be spurred on encouraged to it by Peter here. And that's not something to be born alone. And so you have to lean upon those in the church who with you can help encourage you to that kind of gentle, quiet, long game of patient faithfulness and prayerfully seek out the conversion of your spouse in the long run. And so we want to note that while the text clearly calls for a difficult, selfless patience with the spouse who has not been converted, that doesn't mean somehow that we allow ourselves to be harmed or that we imagine that we can do this on our own. These are words to the church. These are words to a group of Christians who are meant to, with linked arms, journey together through hard times. Secondly, we see a a word to husbands. Verse 7, it's rather short, as I mentioned, because this is actually historically and sociologically a rare thing. By and large, husbands don't get converted, but wives are converted. By and large, husbands aren't the first ones converted. Any look around shows you this, historically and sociologically. But it's remarkable. Of the three texts here in chapters 2 and 3, where someone is told to be subject or to submit, this is the only instance where there's a word to the other party. There is no word in chapter 2 to how governmental authorities are to care for citizens. There is no word to masters or employers how they're to care and lead their employees. But there is a word to husbands. Because there will be some husbands who are converted whose wives are not yet converted. And they need to know something too. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. This is not suggesting that women are less intelligent or less spiritual. The entire text is premised on the fact women are more likely to get it faster. It would be rather strange if suddenly Peter was saying that women are slower or less godly. What does it mean that the woman is the weaker vessel? Then, and sadly now, the woman is the one who is more easily tossed aside and likely to suffer if the newly Christian spouse or the spouse of any new religious commitment decides they don't want to continue to be married to the spouse. If a Christian husband cast aside his non-Christian wife in the first century, Peter knows she will struggle to make ends meet because the economy hums in a male-dominated way. That was the world of then, and we've made advances, but that's still largely the world today in so many places. And so Christian husbands are called to be mindful, even if their spouse hasn't yet come to know Christ 
Even if their spouse mocks their faith rather than encourages their faith, they're to selflessly, respectfully, in an understanding way, care for their non-Christian wife. They're still bound to her until death do us part. And they're to be mindful of that, that she is in a precarious position. She's likely to wonder, what does he think of me? What will he do with me? How will he relate to me? Now that he's a Christian and I'm not. Now that there's this remarkable division or distinction between us. The Christian husband is to be mindful of that. The Christian husband is to be selfless and sacrificial in that regard. It's worth noting the text doesn't argue for why husbands are to lead in marriage. Other texts do. Genesis 2, Ephesians 5. But it's worth noting what we see in Ephesians 5. What does it mean for a husband to lead? More often than not, by which I mean in almost every case, being the leader in marriage means being the first to be willing to give up your preference. What does it mean for me to lead my wife in our marriage? It doesn't mean... I get all sorts of perks. Though she's wonderful and life with her is great. There are lots of wonderful blessings. But being the leader doesn't mean I experience lots of perks because I'm leading. It means when we're at loggerheads, when we have a tactical, strategic decision to make, how do we spend our money? What are we going to do with the kids? What decisions to be made here about schedule or there about something we're to do or not do? When it comes to matters of preference, my leading means I say, okay, I don't need my way. As any leader knows, it comes at great cost. Now, I realize that's not the picture we have, because in our world, as we think about political leaders, we don't think about people by and large anymore who are sacrificially giving of themselves for others. We tend to think about people who are cozying up to power and who are getting out of it. And it's worth noting that's precisely the opposite of what leadership looks like in the Christian community, and in particular, in the Christian family. What does it mean for a Christian to lead, whether it's in a church or in a family? It means that they're the first to exemplify the posture of Christ, and he hung on a cross. It means they're the first to say, not my will, but yours be done. There's a remarkable selflessness involved. And that's why verse 7 begins with the same word that verse 1 does. Likewise, this whole passage following the end of chapter 2 is all about how we patiently and selflessly give up our own prerogatives and desires, what we might think would be joyful, happy, and comforting for the sake of love for another. Why would we do that? And that's where we see the third thing. Why would we selflessly and sacrificially give up the easy, comfortable life? Why would we stay with a spouse who doesn't get it or who perhaps mocks us for getting it? The third thing we see is that hope is the motivation. Hope is the motivation. Here and throughout this passage in 1 Peter, look at verses 4, 5, and 6. Peter's commending the adorning of the hidden person of the heart the imperishable beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. And in verses 5 and 6, he says this, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. They were holy because they hoped in God. 
And because they hoped in God, they adorned themselves in this way, that they were respectful to their spouse. That they were submissive in that way. And read on in verse 6. It gives an example. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you're her children, if you do good and don't fear anything that's frightening. Notice that last phrase, if you don't fear anything that's frightening. There are scary things out there. And there are scary things in marriage, right? And any TV show or premarital counseling or friend or parent who doesn't tell you that marriage is frightening is lying or short-sighted, right? Marriage is frightening. Any human tie and bond that close and that enduring is a scary thing. You are throwing your lot in with someone, and it is out of your control in so many ways. That is fearful. That is frightening. But Sarah, Sarah is not frightened by what is frightening. I have this talk often with my oldest son as we talk about courage. What does it mean to be brave? He's six. He's a kindergartner. He's ready to fight in the Revolutionary War. And I want to talk to him about what's involved in being someone who's noble and brave and courageous. And he knows Dad has not a lot of variety in answering the question. What does it mean to be courageous, son? It means that you don't fail to do what you need to do because you're scared. He knows it doesn't mean you're not scared. He knows it means you do what you got to do even though you're scared. Even though something is frightening, you fear not and you do what you're to do. That's Sarah's posture here. Abraham was not a great guy. I mean, this is a really hilarious example if you're a Bible reader. Abraham is wonderful, right? Read Genesis 12. God calls him to leave home. God calls him to leave riches. Abraham doesn't even have a GPS destination yet. God just says, go, and he goes. And they're out on the journey, and People are attacking a friend, and Abraham willingly takes his best, and they go fight on someone else's behalf. And he doesn't get land out of it. He doesn't get riches out of it. He goes and sacrifices, putting himself on the line for another. And they come to the promised land finally. And Abraham and a relative, who frankly is a punk if you're a Bible reader, Lot, come to the land, and they know it's to be divvied up. And Abraham lets the punk of a relative have first choice. And he does what You'd expect. He takes the good land, and Abraham has to settle for what's worse. And he goes with it. Abraham's great. Until you're dating him. Right? I don't have a daughter, and Abraham's long dead. But if I had a daughter, and Abraham was around, he wouldn't be allowed to date her. Because you go into a foreign land, and he gets a little cowardly at times. And lest he get himself into trouble, she's my sister. She's not my wife. Don't kill me to get to her, right? And it gets rather comedic and tragic because he doesn't learn the lesson. And a few chapters later, I don't know why she took another trip with him, frankly, but there they are, and he does the same thing. And yet Sarah respects him, not because he's not frightening, but because she doesn't fear. Why? Because she has hope. Not confidence that he's terribly bright, not optimism that he'll always do the right thing, but hope. 
Hope is not optimism, and hope is not simply the absence of pessimism. Hope is a wholly different thing. There are people out there who are glass-is-half-full sort of people. And there are people out there who are glass-is-half-empty sort of people. And then there are Christians who have hope, who don't think the future is premised on what we see that's threatening or what we can observe that's promising, but who believe that the future is entirely dependent on God who has said. And that's Sarah. That's Sarah. Her husband is at times, frankly, rather frightening and a little worrisome. But she doesn't fear. She doesn't overlook it. She's not naive. But she's respectful and patient. And she hopes in God. And so she's able to selflessly and sacrificially love someone else and bless them in so doing. That's the way of the Christian life. Whether you're single, married, widowed, divorced, the way of the Christian life is the way of the cross. Chemotherapy brings life and promise to people stricken with horrific disease. But anyone who's gone through chemotherapy will tell you that the way to life and flourishing is to absolutely pummel your body and to break it down. And there's something remarkable there. There's a parable and an illustration of something that Jesus himself told us. That he who lays down his life shall take it up again. Which we see, of course, in his willingness, sacrificially, to bear our sins, our guilt, our shame upon his own feeble, frail, broken body on the cross. And having done so, having given up all comfort, all peace, to take it back up again in joy and blessedness in the resurrection from the dead. And he calls us, those of us who name ourselves as Christians, to walk that path and to take up our own cross And to have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus, viewing others as more significant than ourselves. And there is a a part of us, if we're honest, that reads a text like this and says, that is not your best life now. That's not terribly appealing. There is a part of us that looks at this and says, I'm not quite sure I want to walk that path. That I want to put up with that person. There is a part of us that wants glory now. There is a part of us that wants peace and comfort and ease right this very day. And Peter gives us this warning. It's not that time yet. It's not the time for glory. It's not the time of perfection. It's not the time of perfect peace and tranquility in your city, or even in your home. But it is a time of hope. And so it's a time of selflessness and of patience and of respectful care for those to whom we've given ourselves. And so it's a time for witness. And as Peter will say elsewhere, God's patience and the time marked by that patience is a time 
for repentance. And that's a great joy and promise to those of us who know the blessings that come through repentance and through God's transforming of a darkened sinner into a child of light, a son or daughter of the King. Let's pray and ask that God would instill that hope in each of our hearts. Father, we know that your word oftentimes cuts deep. It tells us that which we might not imagine or make up, but that which you, our creator, our designer, our Lord and King, know to be for our good and for our flourishing. And we confess as we consider your words, we oftentimes realize we will not be enough and we will not be able to do this on our own. And so we rejoice that you give your Holy Spirit. We rejoice that you provide a comforter, an advocate, that the same Spirit who raised your dead son to life has been given to us. That where we see death and darkness in our lives, we can hope and look knowing that you will bring about life and light and all the blessings that he brings. And so we give ourselves to you, and we pray that having given ourselves to you, you might strengthen us, that we could give ourselves to others in love. And we pray that in doing so, you will draw them to you, that your name will be made great, that they will experience the glory and goodness of your salvation, and that you will be praised for it. This we ask in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.